Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a conversation with Leonard Wood, the founder and former CEO of Wood Partners, one of the country's leading apartment builders, and also the founder of the Leonard Wood Center for Real Estate Studies at the Keenan Flagler School of Business at the University of North Carolina. When Joe Keogh, the CEO of Wood Partners, called to suggest an interview with Leonard, I was thrilled. I had not seen or spoken with Leonard in years, but remember him to be soft-spoken and thoughtful at the same time as a giant in the industry, a combination in business that we do not often get to see. That's both the tone and the value that I experience with this interview with Leonard. The interview with Leonard is bookends to the last episode, which was an interview with Doug Bibby from the National Multifamily Housing Council, and also, of course, a compliment to the double episode I had last year with Ron Terwilliger. Now in our collective second month of sequestration during COVID-19, I spoke with Leonard from my home in the Bay Area and his home in the Florida Keys. In our conversation, Leonard tells the story of his business career with consistent lessons learned at Arthur Anderson's Sea Pines Corporation and then at Trammell Crow Residential before starting Wood Partners. As in the interview with Ron Twilliger, we hear the story of the growth of Trammell Crow Residential and its influence on the apartment business, particularly when as part of the recovery from the SNL recession, companies that became Gables, Avalon Bay, Alliance Residential, and indeed Wood Partners were essentially spin-outs from TCR. In the episode, Leonard tells the story of the founding of Wood Partners, its quick growth, its incredibly well-timed sale recapitalization with CBRE, literally the day before Bear Stearns went down, CBRE's patient partnership stewarding their investment in this business very successfully through the global financial crisis, and finally, the thoughtful succession plan within the company, which is now in its fourth CEO. There are many business lessons and takeaways throughout the conversation. The headline for me hearing it once again from Leonard is the importance of doing business with really smart people, making sure that interests are aligned, and having a long-term approach to make sure that the real estate developed makes a lasting contribution to our built environment. Leonard caps the conversation off talking about his support for the UNC program, and his articulation of goals for the next generation of leaders is spot on. It's now early May, which brings us to month three of the national shutdown around the COVID-19 crisis. Our world has been upended in every way by the crisis. Our next episodes will again focus on conversations about how the real estate business is adjusting to both the immediate crisis and longer-term impacts. Future guests will include Mary Ludgan, the head of global research at Heitman. Mary and I are going to look into the crystal ball and talk about real estate in a post-COVID world, if that's the right term, and the potential long-term, maybe fundamental changes to society and the real estate world from this crisis. We'll be talking with a more immediate focus with Amy Rose from Rose Associates in New York about how her company has dealt with the crisis in New York City, and also Jody McLean from Eden's talking about what her company and the industry is doing around the hard-hit retail business. We will continue the conversations equally now around issues in coping rather than such a deep dive on career stories that's been the tradition in Leading Voices. I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app, refer our show to your friends, and feel free to contact me at matt at and watch for our posts on LinkedIn as well. Enjoy the conversation with Leonard. So, Leonard, we should start our conversation 
And thank you for being on Leading Voices. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest. And I'm starting all the conversations these days with a, where are you right now and in what situation are you sitting? I know you're in the Florida Keys, but tell our listeners, uh, kind of paint the picture for us. So I been the winner in uh, in Key Largo, Florida, which is uh, about 20 miles due south of Miami uh, in a straight line and uh, in a community there, seasonal community primarily, called Ocean Reef. Mm-hmm. And it, during the season, functions as a small city. It has plenty of restaurants and, and movie theater and some performing arts and outside activities and golf and tennis and so it's it's a nice uh, place to be in the winter and particularly a good spot uh, during this COVID crisis as we're pretty self-contained uh, all the restaurants are closed but provide carry out and we don't have a lot of people we don't know coming to the community so feels good from a sort of personal safety standpoint and the rest of the year you live in Atlanta uh, we live in the greater Atlanta area because uh, both our children uh, are there and our seven grandchildren. Uh, but we have some weekend properties near the city. One we spend the most time at is in Highlands, North Carolina, which is just uh, much cooler than Atlanta and a small town that's easy living when it, when it gets pretty hot in July and August here in Atlanta. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Leonard, today we're going to talk a lot about your career and the company you built, the company you sold, and how you got there, and the work you do at UNC. But before we jump into that, due to the COVID crisis, and you've been more of a developer than an operator your whole career, but any thoughts of the impact of this crisis on the business, both immediate term and long term? Yeah, I think in the short term, many people are, uh, of course, as you know, Matt, my primary career was multifamily housing, almost all of that rental, but some condominiums. Right. Uh, we did a little bit of retail related to some of the housing we built, but primarily uh, multifamily for rent. And with people practicing social distancing and, and working from home, you know, if anything, I think as we go forward, the housing part of people's equation will be more important. You know, they'll spend more time there, maybe work there, and it needs to be better designed and perform better than it ever has. And I think it'll be more important to people. So I think it's uh, got a very bright future. And because of the trends that were there, and then, of course, it was amplified by this health crisis. So I, I feel uh, really good about long. I felt great about it to begin with, and I feel better about of housing industry, whether it's for rent or you own it, working from home is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as to the more of the short run here, you know, a lot of people are losing their jobs or furloughed, some kind of reduction in their income, and so we'll have to see how their ability to pay rent uh, sorts out. Certainly no landlord in this crisis wants to put anybody out on the street, and in many cases, those states are prohibiting that right. anyway. But, you know, we, everybody's going to want to help people in need. And if they can't pay rent, that'll potentially cause some difficulties for the owners, you know, because the property has its ongoing expenses. It uh, has to pay its mortgage. It has to 
have landscapers and people to repair properties, uh, mechanical, mow the grass, just keep it up. So that's yet to be seen. I think early results were pretty good, April rent collection. Surprisingly good. Pretty good. May's going to be tough. Yeah. So, but, you know, a lot of heartache coming for uh, people that aren't able to work. Absolutely true. One of the interesting things I'm, it's, it's feeling, not just in a multifamily sector, but certainly in the retail sector, even and in the office sector, is that tenants and landlords' interests become somewhat of a partnership. You, you know, particularly in retail where you have, you know, huge FF&E with a, with a tenant, you don't want to lose that, even a burrito shop, you don't want to lose them and have them go out of business and have to release it to some stranger four months from now because they were a good operator. And same with a residential tenant, same with an office tenant. You People want to work with each other. They're in better shape if they do. Uh, no question about that. I am involved in some retail and, you know, we, were, we don't want those people to leave. So we're doing uh, whatever we can to help them. And I, I think that'll be true for real estate in general, as you pointed out. Absolutely. So we've a lot of subjects to talk about today, and each of them could take a full hour. So we may kind of run through some of this relatively quickly. And Leonard, some of the story that I'm going to want you to tell about the multifamily business and the development, multifamily development business are stories we've told on leading voices previously, particularly uh, from your former partner, Ron Twilliger, who we dove deeply into the Trammell Crow residential story, much of which I know he shares with you. So we may rush through a couple of the topics and then, you know, linger more deeply on others. Um, so this is going to be a fun conversation. Absolutely. So you grew up in Northern Virginia and your parents both worked in the government. Talk a little bit about growing up and kind of how that moved you towards business, first accounting, and then onward from there. Yeah, and I think uh, at this time, Matt, it has some uh, great connections to what we're going through now. Yep. Uh, both of my parents were a product of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, they you know, were leaving home when it started and struggled to find work and finally did and suffered through you know, a very bleak uh, period uh, where even though they had work, they didn't have much. And it, it forever changed how they thought about the world. And they, when that was over, uh, they had both ended up working for the government, Mm -hmm. uh, getting jobs with the federal government while they, during the Depression, and they stayed there. And they wanted to have the security of the employment and the security of the federal government retirement program, and were willing uh, to give up, at least at that time, the pay was lower for those jobs versus industry, but much more secure. And I always had the sense that while they weren't unhappy, they didn't terribly, they wished they could have done something else, Mm -hmm. even though they worked hard and and liked what they did. It it wasn't appealing to them. And I had seen that model, uh, watch my parents. And then the other model I'd seen was I was close to some grandparents and they had owned and operated clothing stores. And you know, had good years and bad years and joined the club in the good years. And But I could feel the energy uh, from that experience, and that was the one that appealed to me. So I think from an early age, that was, uh, you know, the model my parents had followed while I understood why it appealed to them was one that didn't appeal to me. And so I was interested in a more entrepreneurial type of employment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So then you went to college and studied accounting. Was that to get into the business world? Yeah, so uh, I actually uh, went to NC State and spent uh, time there in technical subjects and because I was good at it and I, my parents hadn't gone to college. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was just good at math and science. And, and after a couple of years of that, I decided that while I was good at it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And, and so I ended up finishing uh, at NC State, but then going straight to uh, the University of North Carolina's business school, which you could do back then. You could go straight from undergrad into grad. Mm-hmm. It's frowned on now. They want people to have experience, of course. But in any event, uh, I figured out during undergraduate that I, I'd made a mistake in studying technical things. I wanted to be in business and went and got my MBA. I had a slight sidetracked there because Vietnam War came along and I got drafted. So I finished one year of MBA school and then spent two years in the Army. I was fortunate. I uh, got a a good uh, sort of administrative job in the Army and in no small part because of my business training and then came back and finally finished uh, business school. Uh, After business, uh, after my MBA, I didn't really know what I wanted to do and Maybe like investment banking is today, one of the options that you could go with a big public accounting firm was to uh, do something like that. And then you could look at other businesses and maybe get a feel for uh, what you want to do. So after I got my MBA, I took some accounting courses uh, in summer school the following summer and, and uh, ended up going to work for Arthur Anderson, which is no longer with us, but was, uh, was a great firm. Great for my, my wife worked there in their capital market, real estate capital markets group for a while. So, and while when she joined, it was the premier firm, and she left before the crash. Fortunately, yeah, and it was a, a wonderful place. You know, you were surrounded by smart, hardworking people, mm-hmm. great reputation. I can tell you that they, uh, in spite of Enron, they were trying to do the right thing and by their clients and the public. I was proud of the. Time I spent there, and of course, it led me to the real estate world because I had a lot of real estate clients. Many of the names are not around anymore, but Cousins Properties, for one, is still out there, and they were a client. and And uh, by being involved with real estate clients, sort of said, "Gee, I sure like what these people are doing. Feels like something I'd be interested in." So I ended up leaving Arthur Anderson for a former. Uh, Seapines entity, and uh, became a controller there, and got started in the in the real estate world. Uh-huh. And, and let's pause on that one for a minute. We I talked to Ron about the same subject, but Seapines is one of those places, and maybe it was its tie, its either then tie or certainly its future tie to the Urban Land Institute, because several of the leaders of Seapines, or many of them, went on to become leaders in real estate generally, but all had a commitment to ULI. What, what was going on at Seapines that made it an organization that kind of fomented such a culture and such a group of young people who went on to be leaders in the business? Well, it's uh, interesting that when you look at its history, they a guy named Charles Frazier yeah. started it, and he surrounded himself with uh, young, uh, smart people, and he, uh, he encouraged them to be creative and to 
try and find a better model for how to go forward. And, and Sea Pines was an example of that. There was a lot of junky second home stuff going on in the U.S. Charles said, you know, we can, we can master plan this. We can make it beautiful. We can preserve the seashore and the, the historical buildings. And, you know, we can do something special here. And so he, he had a mindset of doing it right, doing it different, doing it better. And he got young, energetic people involved, and, and they embraced it mm-hmm. and loved it. So uh, it, I think that was, uh, you know, maybe a different model than existed out there. And I know one year, Seapines hired more Harvard MBAs than any other company in the U.S., and yet it was far smaller than uh, many other companies that hired people. But the Ramta Willigers and Perry Goldens and, and many others of the world were attracted to that model where they were also given a fair amount of freedom to make a mistake and yet and then learn from it and go forward. So those people, you know, maybe because of the way Charles Frazier thought about real estate and doing a better job, leaving something better than they found it, were drawn to ULI. And, uh, you know, ULI is all about best land use practices. It's not political. It doesn't lobby for the apartment industry or the industrial world or anything. What its purpose is, is to encourage good land use, uh, to have the next project be better than the last one. And so I think that Seapines people were attracted to that. Uh What's most interesting to me is that the Seapines, again, hired more Harvard MBAs at a particular time than anyone else, even for a small company. Many of those people Then there was a purpose with the company and some training around meaning of how we do our work. But I'm also guessing having that many younger, smarter people together in a semi-competitive and semi-collaborative organization might be one of those measures of success that, you know, 20 years from now, we'll go look back at organizations today that have those characteristics that pushed out a whole lot of young leaders as well. I think that's right. I mean, great, young motivated people pushing each other, if you will, yeah. to do better. And, you know, in a lot of ways, Arthur Anderson was like that. It, it was mm-hmm. far more structured, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. But the same thing, bright young people pushing each other to do better. Certainly, Sea Pines. So let's, let's not tell the end story for Sea Pines, but take that right into Trammell Crow Residential, because I'm going to guess there was almost a carbon copy of that dynamic in having that be a company that made such a difference in the apartment business and still does. But kind of talk about moving over there and then the role that you had and then kind of growing in that culture and maybe some parallels to what we just talked about. Yeah, I uh, during the uh, 81 recession, which was a recession uh, that occurred because the country was trying, the government was trying to hold down inflation. Inflation had gotten pretty high, and that doesn't help anybody. And so back then, the tool that was used is to keep raising interest rates. The prime rate at one point got to 21, mm-hmm. uh, and it pretty much shut down the real estate world. And uh, I, I, as part of uh, where I was, was involved in a resort community, and, and uh, which ended up being sold. And so after we completed that sale, I was looking for an opportunity Ron Twilliger had been on our board, and so I had circulated my resume to Ron and said I'm interested in the 
Scramble Crow organization. And, and a few weeks later, he called me back because we'd known each other from the board. And he said, well, you know, I, I think I'd like to talk to you about uh, working in Trammell Crow Residential if you have an interest. And so we had discussions, and I ended up uh, opening uh, an office for Trammell Crow Residential in North Florida. We were uh, developers of apartments in the Tampa and Orlando and Jacksonville. Uh, and then about three years later, I was asked by Ron to move back to Atlanta and uh, take over the southeast uh, for Trammell Crow Residential. And about what year was that? That was 1985. So I started in 1982 in, in Orlando, 1985 moved to Atlanta, and then for the rest of my career with Tremble Crow, worked out of the Atlanta office. Eventually, uh, you know, kind of condensing this, uh, I had North Florida and the Southeast, the Midwest, uh, Texas and the Southwest were territories that reported through me to Ron. So, you know, technically I reported to Ron and technically Bruce Ward reported to me or Jim Simpson or Mark Bromley or people like that. Uh, although I think we all thought of it as we were partners and there was a partner in charge, but that uh, it was very collaborative uh, mm-hmm. equals in, in many ways, although somebody had to have the final say. So it was a wonderful run. Uh-huh. <laughs> And, and we'll come back to some of those names because they became leaders of their own companies as they spun out. But so that was, you were running that quarter of the business or third of the business, whatever it was, through mid-80s, through the ups, the SNL crisis happened. Yeah, actually, uh, it's a very interesting time. I mainly ran the Southeast until the, the next financial crisis, which was in you know, 1991, big SNL crisis and uh, very devastating to the real estate. And we weathered that storm uh, like everyone. We had problems, but we weathered it pretty doggone well in the residential company uh, primarily because uh, uh, one of great, uh, we had a very risk managed approach to the business. And while we weren't able to escape all, all bad things, we had used a lot more equity and less debt than others and uh, sort of weathered that storm pretty well. But uh, a consequence of that is real estate was a very underperforming asset in the early 90s, 91, 92, during that recession. And as we began as a country to come out of that recession, uh, there wasn't much money for real estate. Banks were still trying to organized, equity people were still nervous, and uh, finding equity even for good projects was was very uh, difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And it, as frequently happens, uh, the public markets sort of figured that out, and they began to think, gee, I bet public capital would like to come into this market when assets are undervalued, and uh, and participate in an increase in value over time. And, and then how do you, what do you do? How do, how do you get the public involved? Well, they figured out that uh, the REIT model was a pretty good model. Uh, it had had its problems in the past, but related primarily to too much leverage. So the public, actually Wall Street, providing a pretty good service there, figured out we could come back with REITs, use low leverage, have a risk-managed approach, mm-hmm. and get started. And so, uh, for example, uh, Dick Michaud, 
was unable to get capital, had some good assets, but wasn't going anywhere in the environment that existed and was able to get his assets rolled up and, and taken public as Avalon, which you know, later became Avalon Bay. And Dick was running the D.C. Uh, shortly area. after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, D.C. and Northeast. Right. And then, uh, you know, less than a year after that, a lot of my partners uh, in the Southeast, led by Mark Bromley, uh, went out as Gables Residential and, uh, again, as a way to access capital so they could grow. The capital wasn't there and uh, on the private side, but uh, the public at that time was willing to supply it as long as they liked uh, the way the risk management of the REIT involved. And and this happened with other regions of the country of of that Trammell Crow residential organization. So I I think it happened in Texas at uh, the West Coast. Yeah, I mean, uh, eventually, uh, as time went by, uh, so the, the D.C. area and the Northeast uh, became Avalon, and the Southeast uh, Texas became Gables. The North Florida part of Trammell Crow Residential was sold to Maryland, that was then acquired by Equity Residential. The Midwest operation was acquired by Avalon and Amley, and the Southwest operation, Bruce Ward, was acquired by acquired by BRE. So, in a span there of about four years, great portion of Tremelco Residential was either acquired uh, by an REIT or or became an REIT. Uh-huh. And it, at that time, were you attracted to yourself being the CEO of one of those organizations that were spinning out or not? What what was your part of that story? I was never attracted to the to the public side of uh, real estate, uh, and and part of that was my Arthur Anderson experience. had had public clients as uh, an auditor with Arthur Anderson, public real estate clients like Cousins, for example, Cousins, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, you know, having to sort of have quarterly earnings growth when you're in an industry that is very volatile and maybe was even more volatile back then. Maybe they used a little bit more leverage uh, than you know than the REITs do today and the public companies do today and uh, real estate companies, that is. And, and so, you know, I just saw them get whipsawed uh, and the stock value fluctuate so widely, uh, you know, cousins. For that, in 1973, was uh, trading at thirty dollars a share, and in 1975, it was trading at one dollar a share. Right. And so, seeing that sort of thing happen, and it just uh, didn't seem to me that the public model was a great one for uh, real estate. And you know, there's more bureaucracy, you know, more board meetings, and things that uh, I guess. Going back, just my own biases of uh, liking a, a more entrepreneurial environment. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a combination of things, of my own biases as, as well as um, I was pretty sure that you know the public model was not a great one for development company. If you own assets like a REIT and appropriate leverage and all that, it's a great model. So I decided in every case I probably had opportunities to be on the public side that I wanted to stay on the private side and, and thought well, that was a better business model for me individually. 
Yeah, it's interesting. And, and your last comment's the one that echoes the most because you're talking about remaining a developer on what you individually wanted to do. The REIT model has wound up being really sustainable and stable and profitable and successful, but not for you and not for what you wanted to do. Exactly. And, you know, I'm happy with the choices that I made, but understand that they're great companies that provide a lot of great opportunities. Mm-hmm. So as those businesses wound up spinning out of Trammell Crow Residential, then you made yet a different choice. So talk about the evolution of your thinking and starting Wood Partners. Yeah, I think uh, a couple things happened. Uh, one, because of all these either creation of REITs or sales of blocks of assets to REITs, I had uh, liquidated a lot of the assets I have been involved in. And so, you know, personally, I enjoyed some good liquidity from those events, which was nice. Gives you the freedom to not work or work in a different way or whatever wanted to do. Uh-huh. And um, I think I just began to think about, you know, would I ever like to run my own company? What would be the benefits of doing that? You know, would it be more fun for me? Could it potentially be more profitable for me? Uh, could I put my own fingerprints on it in maybe a little different way? Not that, I mean, we had great partnerships at the partnership at Trammell Crow for sure. It was a fabulous part of my business career. But, you know, could I maybe do it uh, a little differently and it would be more satisfying to me? And I, as I thought about all those things, I said, gee, this, this would be a great, great time for me to start my own company. And so the time frame there is, you know, 1998. Uh, that's when I started. Right. And the last of those companies probably liquidated right around 96, 97. So that was the pause and then go do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was And a good, good market going forward in multifamily for development. Yeah, it, it appeared to be a very uh, solid market. You know, the people community, the kind of the greater real estate community, had not forgotten uh, the lessons from 1991, mm-hmm. and so development was proceeding at a at a more reasonable pace. You know, people were being smarter about how they financed real estate, and supply was you know a lot more constrained than it had maybe been in the past. So it looked to me like uh, there was good go forward opportunity, mm-hmm. and it was a good time for me to because of the liquidity for me to set out on my own if I was kind of ever going to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit about what the different model might have been. So, cause you're coming from the kind of premier company that figured out how to do this on a merchant build basis fairly successfully. But first maybe talk about leaving the company you were so long associated with and how you left. Yeah. Two things happened of note there. One as I was leaving, uh, some of my partners, Jim Simpson and Jerry Durkin, who were close friends and you just work with people every day and they become family almost. And so when I told them I was going to leave and I was going to start a company, they, they said, you know, you know what, we would like to go with you. And, uh, and so that was uh, part of what was going on. That I was going to form Wood Partners. And I had some people at Tremelco Residential that wanted to come, come with me. And 
that was fine. I had been working with them. I knew them. I liked them. We had a good relationship. But obviously, that potentially was conflict with Tramoka Residential. Mm-hmm. That made it even more important to me that as we left, that we left in a way where all the partners, including the Crow family and Ron Twilliger, felt good about it. And I believed and still believe that we worked together, uh, Ron and I and the Crow family, for 17 years. I went there with very little net worth. I left with significant net worth. We'd all had fun and enjoyed working together, been great business partners through thick and thin. And it was sort of hard for me to understand how how we couldn't part as friends in part. Uh, you know, there was no, I, I was determined not to let anything uh, minor or even somewhat significant get in the way of us parting on good terms. I just felt like uh, it had been too good. Everybody come out ahead and there should be a way to work through it. And so we did and, you know, remain friends to this day, uh, have done business together outside of those days. And, uh, and I'm currently on the advisory board of Tramilker Residential today. Uh, Evidence. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, but it was hard work because there's always some hurt feelings when, when, you know, it's in its own way a divorce. But I in particular, but I think everybody worked hard to have the separation be friendly as it could be and as, as fair as it could be. And, and uh, you know, we were able to go on down the road with, our heads held high and mm-hmm. and really not carrying a lot of baggage of, from sort of a, some kind of battle. Who gets this and who gets that? We yeah. you know, I, just kind of totally avoided it. I'll, I'll make a couple observations. One, you already said it, which is you're now on their board, so you know you, you must have done it the right way. The second thing is you, it probably wouldn't have been so easy if so many others hadn't spun out in different ways, each of which were profitable to everyone. And the third thing is it's interesting. My last podcast was with, with our friend, Doug Bibby. And we talked about the apartment business being particularly collaborative as an industry, that there's more friendships in this business among competitors than there are not. And that winds up persisting through this industry somehow is that people know that if they burn a bridge here, they're going to hurt themselves later. That sounds too self-interested, but it, but if you start with that premise, it's a pretty good one. You know, it's uh, it's a great observation. Uh, that sort of friendly competition, if you will, does pervade uh, the multifamily industry. You never know when you're going to be working with or interacting either with a former partner or a competitive company, or you know, maybe they've got land to spin off. Or but but it's kind of life is too short to be fighting when you can be uh, moving forward to the next good opportunity. And it just seems like that's how it's worked out. And people have maintained their uh, good relationships and friendships. Mm-hmm. You don't see it across the world in business. So it's, I don't think you do. It's, this is the world I know. So maybe it's that way everywhere, but I don't think so. So then you took this new model, you took, you know, some old former colleagues you've worked with before you built some new partnerships and friendships you grew the company. Talk about two things. One is maybe there were some differences in the model of your merchant build, national merchant build company. And the second thing is I think in like three years, you became the most prolific developer or three, four years, the most prolific developer in the country. Yeah, I think the basic model 
was the same. Mm-hmm. We might have been a little bit flatter in our organization, you know, but the same thing. You want highly motivated entrepreneurs, owner-operators, and maybe the best performance for that type of person comes from a flatter organization. Uh, in the Trammell Crow model, uh, almost every office was an independent business in many ways, mm-hmm. and that left people doing some administrative chores and other items that maybe they didn't want to do or they weren't they were good developers but maybe not good administrators. Some were, some weren't it was different. And so one thing different in the model was a lot of the administrative things were more centralized. Instruction was more centralized. The organization was a little flatter. I think we tried to be a little more efficient as the meetings. Uh, but the the model was the same. It was just you know, maybe think of it like an auto industry where, you know, a car used to be this and, you know, you make refinements and improvements to it and it's a little better. I think, you know, you can argue about which model's better, but we, we certainly thought as partners we were refining the model in a better way. We certainly uh, probably focused on centralized numbers and reporting a little more, uh, believing that uh, good numbers, good centralized data allowed you to make better decisions faster and uh, that the data you were seeing from one area was truly comparable to the data mm-hmm. from another area. Maybe my uh, some of my idiosyncrasies from my CPA days flowed through and uh, we had a little bit more of uh, that than, than we did in also makes sense that as you establish a new organization at that point in time, you could have centralized data. I don't know if you remember this, but at the time I was running the multifamily housing institute, and I was trying to create a centralized data warehouse for the apartment industry. And I'd go to the REITs and other organizations, and this was really hard to do then. But I went to Trammell Crow Residential to see if we could find data, and it turned out I had to go to every single partner in order to get information because it didn't really roll up on a consistent basis. And even back in the, you know, the late eighties, that was, that was pretty surprising. Sorry, it was the mid nineties, but that was surprising. Yeah. Yeah, And we did, uh, you know, we did change that part of it. And I think for the better, Mm -hmm. Uh, I like, I like the changes. And of course, as you point out, since we were starting fresh, we had a much better opportunity to do so. Right. And, and then, but in how many years was it before you, at least for a year or for several years, you be, you were and have ongoing been the, one of the larger developers in the country? So it was really interesting. Uh, starting from uh, 98 in 2004, we were the largest uh, apartment uh, developer by number of units started of, of anybody in the country. So, you know, we never were after volume. And uh, that was the only year we were, but, you know, it was a heck of a six-year run to get Mm -hmm. from a relatively small uh, regional company to, by that time, a much much broader footprint. And just the way it happened that year, we were the biggest producer of multifamily uh, in the U.S. So, you know, it was a a fantastic effort by the team. Yeah. And, And then the next milestone was the sale of the company. Or the recapitalization of the company. I don't know the right word for it, but talk about that. Now, we came into 2007, 
you know, it was a very frothy market. You couldn't help but feel like it couldn't last forever if you put it in perspective. We started growing again in 1992. Now it's 2007. It's a 15-year run. And we were really in residential and in much of real estate, not affected by the dot-com bubble of 2001. Mm -hmm. And so, boy, this has been a long growth period. And it certainly seems like things are pretty frothy right now. Interestingly, we were working on uh, financing a very complicated high-rise project. And in discussions with C.B. Richard Ellis, investors, uh, one of their funds, about financing the high-rise. And we got talking about, uh, was, was there any possible interest in more than just financing a project, financing uh, or buying a platform? And, you know, to our surprise, uh, in a pretty short order, they came back and said, we'd be interested in talking about how we might get involved in a platform. And so that was uh, in late uh, 2007, you know, the early fall, mm-hmm. uh, September, we started talking uh, with them. And back to a point we discussed earlier, we had good numbers. And so when we started talking about which you like to buy or invest in our platform, we were able to provide high quality information pretty quickly. And they were impressed. I mean, I, I think they sort of expected to get some of what they'd seen elsewhere, and we really had a lot of good info. Mm -hmm. They were impressed with the speed of the information or impressed with the numbers or both? Both. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And it was sort of like they were getting, you know, it wasn't public company quality, but but it was good. And and so, you know, our discussions were able to move forward because they could discuss and understand what we'd been doing and what our pipeline was everything about the company quickly. As our discussions evolved, they didn't want to buy all of it uh, because they were afraid, you know, everybody would quit and, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd buy a company. And and so we evolved to this. They would buy a controlling interest 51%. You know, they they would pay us up front for, for that half, pay for the assets as well as the platform. Right. And then, uh, you know, people would stay in place. We'd get 49% of the profits after, you know, the the preference to the money that had gone in. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had the ability to earn up to, uh, depending if we had good years, as much as 60% of of the NOI. Mm -hmm. And so there was incentives uh, both to stay because you were a 49% owner and to do a good job because you could get more than 49%. if you did a great job. And so, you know, we like that. You know, as I said, 15 years into an expansion, we could sort of take some of our hard work off the table and still have a go-forward opportunity for all the partners. By the way, it was sort of a full partnership meeting with a very open discussion, and everybody concurred that this would be a, a good way to proceed. So we proceeded, uh, you know, to, through the documentation phase. That lasted, you know, December, January, February. And their structuring and back and forth, all the things that go on right. in the big transaction. And, so we're now in February of 2008. Yeah. Yeah. We got to early March and uh, 
we had concluded everything. Uh, you know, at that time, there were some uh, cracks in the armor. Uh, you know, some, you know there was, things were beginning to feel different. But again, uh, you talk about the good numbers. We had done a lot of modeling about uh, what if our starts dropped off 25%, our rents quit growing. And we had a number of downside financial models that we reviewed with CBRE. And, you know, after all that work, they concluded, you know, that it was a solid transaction. And uh, we closed, uh, I think, like on March 13th of 2008. And then, you know, and unbeknownst to us, although, you know, we could for sure have a, have a feel that, that things were getting different, you know, Bear Stearns, in lieu of going bankrupt, over the weekend that followed that March 13th, Bear Stearns was uh, sold to Chase over the weekend for two bucks of shares, right. an 85-year-old investment banking firm. And that was the first major problem at the very beginning of the down cycle. So extraordinarily good timing. I don't know whether the deal would have closed or not, but it had closed, and so we were just working uh, when that happened. Uh-huh. It's funny. I, I have a friend who was in your company at the time, and the instructions were go to the bank as quickly as you can because it feels like a good time for that check to clear right this second. And Yeah, you couldn't help after Bear Stearns worrying that uh, somebody might pick up the phone and say we were just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think we proceeded to you know work through the distribution of of uh, funds, et cetera, yeah. as quickly as possible. And and then you're in the foxhole with CB, and, and you hadn't yet retired, so you're still with the company now in the foxhole with CB, figuring out how to weather this business they just invested in through the global financial crisis. Of course, multifamily came out quickly, but talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was a huge disappointment to us and to CB, you know, and we didn't, you know, we'd done this mutually agreed to downside modeling, you know, and we thought we had a, you know, our sort of, here's what happens when it gets pretty bad, you know, starts go from, you know, 5,000 down to 3,500 and rents quit growing and blah, blah, and things looked okay. But what really happened is starts went from 5,000 to uh, 200. Right. And we found ourselves in the middle of a firestorm and started working through it. And since we were both vested in this thing, CB needed to recover their investment and a return on their money. We needed to you know, make profits for the partners. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just went to work. Mm-hmm. And they were fantastic partners, helping us find financial sources as soon as possible. Uh, strategically, they were great thinkers. I couldn't have hoped for a better partnership through a very difficult time. And I think CB uh, in the end did fine for making an investment. When they did, they did extraordinarily well. And Wood came out of it uh, well, too. So, uh, you know, a lot of these sales turn out poorly. Mm-hmm. But I've got to say, I thought it was a great sale and a great partnership. And, you know, my hat's off to them. And, and to the subsequent leadership that uh, you know took over as I went on and retired. Yeah, and it, and you're so lucky that you were partners in this transaction with them versus a full sale. After it hits the fan, it's probably pretty easy to leave and just start fresh. But in this case, each side had the interest to make it work and make it work well and 
we'd had the experience of the SNL crisis to know if you have a little bit of patience, uh, things will probably turn out okay. Exactly. And you just alluded to it, but around then you started to retire, and but the company's been through a couple of CEOs since then, so it's really an evergreen company, although still with your name. Uh, talk about that and how the culture has succeeded in creating that. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. Um, one of the hard things for sort of a private development company is uh, the more senior partners have more capital in the business. Mm-hmm. And how do they exit? And it would be rare unless you had sold your assets to a REIT or created REIT or done something like that at a big financial transaction. You know, it's, it's, you can't re- think that's going to happen all the time. And so how do, you, how do you just keep going forward when it becomes time for one partner to move on right. for whatever reason? That was part of my thinking early on. Mm-hmm and part of our discussions, and uh, I just decided you had to create a culture, set a company up such that you could exit, you'd leave your money in there, and in effect, trust your former partners, now that you've retired, to do a good job, be good stewards of the asset, and to pay you out over time, because they didn't have the wherewithal to do it then. And I can say when you are leaving a nice big chunk of net worth there for some other people to manage for you, you know, that's can be a lot easier said than done. Right. But if everybody understands it's going to happen to them someday and that it's unlikely that you have a CDRE transaction or create a Gable or Avalon, that those things come at a certain time for a certain reason and, and that changes, that you have to have a way to pass forward and not everybody wants to work forever. So I retired, went on the board, and eventually left the board. Mm-hmm. Turned it over to Jerry Durkin, who decided that he would like to retire. Who turned it over to Ryan Dearborn, who decided he would like to retire, and turned it over to Joe Keough. So now, 22 years later, from 2008 2020, uh, it's being run by a fourth CEO. It's thriving. It's in more cities than ever. Enjoys a fabulous reputation and has apparently an evergreen uh, future, as best I can tell and has maintained that culture. So, you know, I take some great pride in that, that uh, it's a model that survived, and it takes some work, and it's create, uh, creating a culture that this is how it's going to be, and we're going to be good stewards of, uh, mm-hmm. of the former partner's money, and, of course, understanding that you can have things happen like are happening right now with COVID. Nobody can control that. You just got to believe they're going to do the best job possible. Yeah. Well, I think that segues to our final discussion topic, which is the Wood Center for Real Estate Studies at UNC. Talk about that and maybe talk about how that might bring that next generation of different kinds of folks up into the business. Yeah, there's at UNC, uh, the business school there is the Keenan Flagler Business School. Its undergraduate program is a top five and the graduate program is a top 20. And the, the Masters of Accounting is a top five. So it's a great great business school, and it had had a history of having a real estate of, of concentration. You know, you can take a few real estate courses, and there, you don't really have a major when you're an MBA, but you can tra- concentrate in marketing or mm-hmm. production or finance or real estate in the case of UNC. And I became interested in advancing that even further, 
having it a more formal approach. So with the university's blessing, we created a center with a capital C and, and the Wood Center for Real Estate Studies at UNC and that started it with an endowment. And a great professor there, a guy named Dave Hartzell. Is, yeah, one of the deans across the country in this business. Yeah, and our overall goal is, you know, we say it's real world real estate, but the goal is to produce, you know, great business people through the business school that are going to be outstanding leaders in the real estate world. And in my mind, what's so important is every place in the world is getting denser and denser. I think there were two cities in the world with 10 million people in 1950, and now there's something like 50 or 60 of them, something like that. And the world is urbanizing. And as that happens, uh, inevitably, the streets are overcrowded. Water supply is inadequate. The sewer is a problem. Uh, there's not enough parks. There's not enough schools. You have poverty and crime. And developing real estate and providing housing and offices and retail, recreation, storage in, in an environment that's crowded and people don't want it. And so it requires better trained people, better thinking, almost going back to talking about CPON. Sure How do does. we do it better? Mm-hmm. How do we do it better? How do we make the real estate so people want it? How do we solve some of these problems by doing better projects? If you're going to work at home, how do we make it a better place to work? So the whole thought is, is that it's a very important asset class, and there's a increasing need over time to have better and better people involved in making the built environment in our world and in our country better and more serviceable to the public. Not only the people that occupy your project, but the people that had to live with it and drive by it, they can also feel good about it. So, you know, if there's a broad thought there that we can be training that next generation that's going to be able to, to do a better job. And I think over time, our industry's done a sometimes a great job, but oftentimes a slap it up job. Um, not the kind of job of creating the kind of environments you're talking about. And indeed, your mission statement, if that's what that was, is really similar to what we think about in doing this podcast, actually, because I think real estate really matters. And those who do it great are going to change the world in a positive way. And if we don't, we're in trouble. Exactly. And, you know, again, if you're not going to do good projects in a good way, uh, how are you going to get them approved? How are you going to attract capital? We just have to be better at what we do. There's so many more needs. You have to, you know, think about affordable housing and transportation and open space. And you can't do a project got a fence around it and hide from the rest of the community. So uh, the other thing, uh, one of the things we're trying to do at the Wood Center is, is we have two initiatives that are part of our uh, efforts these days. One is uh, diversity you know, both uh, female and uh, underrepresented and minorities. Mm -hmm. We're working hard to get more people into the business school that are either women or underrepresented minorities. And we're also trying to attract them into the Wood Center so that they can concentrate in real estate. We're having uh, some uh, not insignificant success, and we're going to 
keep working at it. Uh, more recently, we're we're just trying to figure out how to help on the affordable housing front. So while most MBAs go there to get a great education and get a job uh, at Trammell Crow or Wood or Alliance, you know, they're not interested in going to work for a housing authority. But, you know, we're trying to bring people together to talk about it and think about it and figure out how we can be a resource for workforce and affordable housing. So that's something else we're working awesome. on with the center. But that's great. It also, as you think about affordable housing, the word in shorthand has long meant subsidized housing or government-assisted housing one way or the other. But these days, since housing affordability is tough, it touches people up into way into the workforce. So the breadth of affordable housing goes way up the income scale now, given the social issues that we have going on. So it matters across the board in multifamily. If you're only building for upper or upper income people, it's not going to work very well. Yeah, exactly. And we just have to, you know, yeah. we have to figure out. And it's a very, com- it's an incredibly complex problem, but, you know, we're, we're working on it and hopefully others will too. And, you know, we as the development community and government as our regulators and the citizenry at large will start all pulling together to make it work better. Absolutely. So we're going to run out of time. So let me come to the last question that we always have on Leading Voices, which is probably a good segue from the conversation about the Wood Center. But I always look for advice for a young person who's thinking about a career in the real estate business. And you're now talking to lots of young people about that. But what would your advice be? Well, you know, first and foremost, is I, I just think it's a fantastic industry. I think residential housing is now the biggest asset class, uh, amazingly, in, in the U.S. But all of the real estate combined, including government structures and churches and airports, on and on and on, the built environment at large is, uh, is so important and it's just a great industry. So to start with, I'd say to people, you know, I think it's a great place to be. There's so many facets. I'd also say to them that you know, real estate in general, you have hot spots like Silicon Valley, but in general, the need for real estate grows with the growth of the population. So it's mm-hmm. not a high growth industry. It's, you know, one, two percent kind of growth industry. But, you know, the needs of people are changing. We're, for example, I mean, I think our current crisis is going to change the way some real estate is used. No doubt. But the needs are changing. And, you know, there's always going to be good opportunity there. So I'd say, hey, it's a great industry. It's a slow-growing industry, but that there's tremendous opportunity because of the ever-changing needs of people. And so the opportunity is going to be there. They can't make our real estate in China so or Vietnam or <laughs> wherever, so that's nice. Uh, and it's an industry where if you do a good job, you know, you're helping our citizens and in particular your community. And as we were talking about, you know, we're going to have to have a better model. So I'm mainly talking now about the opportunity, but, but we need to figure out how to do better places, make them more user-friendly for everybody out there. And I'm encouraging anybody listening to think about that. I'm talking to the true believers, you know, make it a career, 
you know, you're not going to be lucky if you get rich quickly, but there's a lot of opportunity out there and if, uh, if you stick with it. And, and I would tell people that you know, managing your risk over time, that I've seen uh, people taking on too much risk, whether it's too much debt or they own too much land that they couldn't put in production or they, you know, had too much payroll or something that they couldn't deal with quickly enough uh, that they'd taken on, uh, maybe they took on an environmental risk. Right. You know, managing uh, your risk, being a good risk manager, I think, you know, people are smart and they work hard. They love real estate. They're going to figure out a way to make good products, be involved in good products, and make good money. And what they frequently happens is that people don't manage their risk properly. They give it all back during a recession. Yeah, certainly so, on the development so side. I'd say be a great risk manager out there. Mm-hmm. And in no small part, because as we've proven in the last 60 days, you just don't know what's coming next. And who would have thought that we'd be seeing in one of the best economies ever with no real problems on the horizon? We would have seen unemployment and job losses that are occurring at a rate that's unprecedented at any time, probably even the Great Depression. Absolutely true. So amazing. Amazing. Your comment about risk, particularly from a development perspective, is huge. Uh, your comment about this time being, of course, unprecedented. We all know that. We all see it. It's No one's ever figured out how to pause an economy before, which is largely what we've had to do with the brakes going on really quick and maybe some heads going through the dashboard. Yeah. And then, you know, another thought is we have these dense cities. We have less resources. I mean, federal government has a big deficit. A lot of states, you know, have all the money they possibly can. Localities following suit. So we're going to have more density, uh, less resources, and, and we're but our needs, for affordable housing and figure out creatively how to do things will be more than ever, whether it's no matter what kind of real estate you're talking about. So being, you know, being that think outside the box, let's get a new model. Sea uh, Pines kind of person is something, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to do. And, and you won't start out running things, but you'll be working for people that are and you can help them think about that and how you would do it when you get the chance. Absolutely true. And again, you you talked about different themes, but the themes of smart people doing great business, trying to make meaning in that business and do it as best they can instead of just getting it up and working with great colleagues in a business like this, uh, all great advice. We may be doing business on Zoom going forward, but having a great reputation people believing in you, uh, building trust with your colleagues and with the third parties you do business with, having core values that are good and sticking to them, you'll build on that and it'll be recognized over time, whether it's your organization or you individually. And, and uh, you sort of that's something you can work on every day and not do it. I'm happy that was your last comment because it was emphasized through this whole conversation, actually. Uh, when you talked about sea pines, when you talked about leaving TCR, setting up your own business, having and and when we started the conversation talking about the apartment industry, managing your reputation, that sounds that sounds cynical, but being a good person keeps your word and keeps your relationships, and knowing you're going to stick with people over years and years is really 
great advice and great things to understand. Hey, Leonard, my sadness on this podcast is I was supposed to do it with you at your home in Florida a month and a half ago. (laughs) And you were the first flight that I had to cancel when the crisis happened. So I'm happy we got to do it on Zoom. Happy we got the time together. And really, really thank you for being on Leading Voices. Yeah, and thank you for uh, reaching out to me. It's always fun to talk about the industry I love. I know it is. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.